0: The Heretic's Forfeit, a tale of jealousy, murder, and revenge, written and performed by Paul Francis Matthews. Episode 5. While Olivia pottered about in her flat, small kitchen, Toby was in the bathroom, demonstrating to William Shakespeare the workings of a modern lavatory. Once you've done your business, right, whatever it might be, you press down on this handle here and it'll be flushed away. Toby tore off a couple of sheets of loo roll and tossed them into the water. Go on, give it a try. Shakespeare pressed down on the handle. What happened next astounded him. (laughs) How delightfully the water whooshed and swirled around the toilet bowl. Shakespeare bust out laughing, but as the water gurgled away and the toilet paper disappeared around the U-bend, he lapsed into a contemplative silence. Flushed away. Olivia called the lads through to the living room. She had brewed a pot of tea for herself and Toby, but for her guest she had prepared something nicer, something more gemütlich. I made this especially for you. It's called hot chocolate. When Shakespeare took a sip from the mug of hot chocolate, his face lit up. Hot chocolate, he declared, was without doubt the most surpassingly delicious thing he had ever tasted. This came as an immense relief to Olivia. She had worried that the two sleeping tablets she'd crushed into it would make it taste bitter. The drugs were quick and soon Shakespeare was snoozing peacefully on the reclining chair. We'll put him to bed in the spare room. I'll leave you to undress him this time. I don't want to say anything in the car, Olivia, but is it wise keeping him here? Wouldn't Institute be a better place for him? We're not handing him over to that bastard Cosgrove. Grove. He'll spend the rest of his life being analysed and experimented on like some kind of laboratory rat. So what are we gonna do with him? Keep him as a pet? Release him into the wild? We're going to do what's best for him. And what's that? In his own good time, he'll tell us. But right now, you and me are going to go back to the Institute and talk to Cosgrove. We are? Yes. We're going to explain to him why he's missing a dead body. It dissolved? What do you mean? "'It dissolved.' "'Professor Cosgrove leaned forward in his chair. "'He was sitting behind his desk. "'In front of the desk sat Olivia and Toby. "'Just that,' said Olivia. "'It dissolved.' "'Cosgrove removed his glasses. "'Please elaborate.' "'As you are no doubt aware, Professor, "'it is essential that the core temperature "'of a defrosted human body "'must not be allowed to exceed a certain limit.' When we entered the laboratory this morning, we noticed that the room was unusually stuffy, and upon checking the thermostat, we found that the temperature in the laboratory was several degrees above that limit. I blame the cleaners. Well, let's not jump to conclusions, Toby. Anyway, the rise in temperature resulted in the body suffering a rapid and tremendously catastrophic cellular disintegration it dissolved. Mr. Bright, I understand that you were filming at the time, so I take it there is a visual record of this corporeal dissolution? No. No? I fainted. You fainted? I fainted as well. You both fainted? Yes. Yes. Hardly surprising, really. It was, like, completely fucking humongously revolting. Have you ever seen Shivers, Professor Cosgrove? It's a film directed by the Canadian auteur David Cronenberg. I've not had the pleasure, no. Well, about these parasitic worm-like things that turn your guts to mush. It was just like that, but a million times worse. By the way, Prof, you should really check out Shivers. It's a 70s horror classic. I'll take your word for it. So what happened to the uh, residue it has been disposed of? I poured it down the sink. And is there anything left of the specimen? No, there was nothing left of the specimen, as you call him. Will that be all, Professor? For the time being, yes. Oh, one more thing before I go. I would like it to be officially noted that I recommended the body to be kept in its frozen state, but I was overruled by you. Good day, Professor. Olivia and Toby left. Cosgrove leaned back in his chair and gave some serious thought to the complete pack of lies he'd just heard. Bodies don't just suddenly dissolve, but they don't just get up and walk out the front door either. So what was the truth? Had the daft, airy, fairy, bimbo and a scruffy lab technician pal stolen the body? And if so, what were they doing with it? Keeping it in the fridge? He didn't know the answer, and when Jasper Cosgrove didn't know the answer to things, it made him tense. There was only one way to relieve the tension. He picked up his phone. The number was on speed dial. I will be around presently, Madame Ivanka. I urgently require a damn good thrashing. William Shakespeare looked into the full-length mirror in Olivia's hallway and saw a total stranger wearing a Breaking Bad t-shirt and a pair of jogging bottoms staring back at him. Olivia must have miscalculated the dosage or Shakespeare must have had a natural resistance to benzodiazepine because he was up and about barely an hour after Olivia and Toby had put him to bed and left for their little chat with Cosgrove. What is thy name? The stranger in the mirror was keeping his name to himself. Shakespeare tried a different approach. Dost thou know my name? If so, then tell me it. Say it. Say my name. The stranger in the mirror remained silent. Ah, well. Shakespeare suddenly experienced a low rumbling perturbation in the pit of his stomach. It had been so long since he had felt this sensation that it took him a little while to identify it as hunger. He located the kitchen. There was a sign on the door saying, "It's my pantry and I'll fry if I want to," but all that the bowl on the table contained were a couple of moldy apples and a weirdly shaped yellow-brown thing that Shakespeare didn't like the look of at all. There was an assortment of tins and jars in the overhead cupboard, plus a couple of brightly colored cans. Made from some sort of vellum or thick papyrus Shakespeare opened one of them The opaque lid came off with a satisfying pop And poured out the contents What spilled onto the black quartz effect worktop was a pile of about six dozen regularly shaped curved flakes, light ochre in hue and possibly vegetable in origin. Shakespeare picked up one of them, held it to his nose and then tentatively placed it on his tongue. His taste buds immediately detected saltiness with notes of soured cream and Spanish onion. It tasted pretty good. He tried another and this one proved equally if not more palatable than the first. "'He tasted another, and another, and another, "'and with each one there was an exponential increase "'in the intensity of its flavour compared to the one before. "'Soon he was shoveling handfuls of the things into his mouth. "'Shakespeare felt giddy. "'What was this glorious comestible, this food of the gods? "'He looked at the wording on the can "'and saw that it was called Pringles.' Once he had devoured all the Pringles on the worktop, he grabbed the other can and went through to the living room. He put it down on the coffee table and then wandered over to check out the bookcase by the window. There was an eclectic mix of volumes, archaeological studies, gothic horrors, romantic fiction, crime novels and histories by writers such as Brian M. Fagan, Mary Shelley, Charles Dickens, Jane Austen, Patricia Highsmith, Stephen King and many, many other people Shakespeare had never heard of. But then he He saw a proper doorstopper of a book entitled The Complete Works of Christopher Marlowe. There was that name again but who was he? Shakespeare took the book from the shelf and started leafing through it. This Marlowe fellow certainly seemed to have written a lot of plays, and here was the one in which Shakespeare had made an accidental appearance that morning. Much ado about nothing. Shakespeare was coming round to the theory, mooted by Olivia, that he was an actor. At some point he reckoned he must have acted in this romantic farce, because how else could one account for him knowing all the lines? He replaced the book on the shelf and walked back over to the coffee table. He flipped open the can of Pringles and settled himself down on the sofa. As he was doing so something jabbed into him. Shakespeare fished the offending object out from under himself. It was the TV remote control. He pressed one of the buttons on the remote and the TV came on. He pressed the button once more and the TV went off. He pressed the button again and the TV came back on again. Shakespeare was a very clever man, but it still wouldn't have taken a genius to figure out that the small device in his hand was controlling the big device in the corner of the room. The TV was showing a report from BBC News about a train derailment in Prague that had killed over 50 people. The running ticker at the bottom of the screen said, live from Prague. Shakespeare wasn't foolish enough to believe that the device in the corner was some kind of magic box with little people. Living inside it, and he knew that Prague was a city in Bohemia. He wasn't a total amnesiac, therefore, he deduced that the device in the corner was able to relay to the viewer images of events from far away. But how it achieved this, he could not even begin to guess. He pushed another button on the remote, and the TV switched over to the History Channel. The images that now appeared on the screen were from a lot further away than Prague. That's one small stamp for man. It was a documentary about the Apollo missions to the moon narrated by the celebrated American astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson. On July 21st, 1969, mission commander Neil Armstrong stepped down from the lunar excursion module and became the first man to walk on the moon. About 20 minutes later, he was followed by Edwin Buzz Aldrin. To this day, the Apollo manned missions to the moon remain the pinnacle of human endeavor. Human beings had walked on the moon. Shakespeare was overwhelmed. What a piece of work is a man! The phrase had just popped into his head. He rather liked it. He watched the documentary right to the end and then Shakespeare tried another channel. This time Sky Sports 1 appeared. It was showing a rerun of an old Spanish La Liga game between Barcelona and Real Madrid. The commentator was terribly excited. just listen to the roar of expectation from this packed new camp in barcelona For Real Madrid, the key figure is the Portuguese genius Cristiano Ronaldo. The linchpin for Barcelona is, as always, Lionel Messi. The diminutive Argentine maestro is considered by many to be the greatest player on the planet. The king of football. But if Messi is king, then Ronaldo must be considered the pretender to that crown. Oh brave new world that has such people in it. Another zinger. Shakespeare was on a roll. When Olivia and Toby got back from their cosy little chin wag with Cosgrove, the first thing Olivia did was to put her head round the door of the spare room and check if her guest was still sleeping. Oh no, where's he gone now? It's all right! Toby shouted through from the living room. He's through here! Shakespeare didn't look up when Olivia walked in the door. In fact, so wrapped up was he in the football that he seemed completely unaware of the two other people in the room. What's he doing? What's he look like he's doing? He's watching football. I can see that. What's he doing watching football? Why shouldn't he be watching football? Olivia had no answer to this. But nevertheless, there was still something about a man from the Tudor period sitting on an Ikea sofa, scoffing Pringles while glued to the football on satellite TV that she found vaguely wrong but then again what was he supposed to be doing practicing his archery singing a madrigal toby looked at his watch right then that'll be me off do you think you could stay the night toby Uh, the sofa turns into a bed so you can sleep in here we can you know hang out could be fun (laughs) oh that's as long as your girlfriend doesn't mind of course no my girlfriend won't mind we split up last month oh Sorry about that. I'm guessing, right, <laughs> that you don't want to be alone tonight because you're scared that our Elizabethan friend really might actually turn out to be an actual fact zombie. What? No! 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 <laughs> Are you sure? Okay, I do admit that I feel slightly uncomfortable about spending the night all alone with a 400-year-old man who's just risen from the grave. It might be a bit... Creepy! Unnerving. But he's definitely not a zombie, because zombies don't eat Pringles. They do if they're human brain-flavoured ones. These are Texas barbecue sauce. So, will you stay, Toby? Please? Please? Please. Well, I'll have to go home and pick up my pyjamas and toothbrush, but of course I will. Great. Olivia took her pus from her handbag and dug out a couple of 20s. Here's cash. Get food. I'll buy the booze. A red wine for me, please. Make it a couple of bottles. Oh, in second thoughts, fuck it. Get a box of the stuff. Several hours later, and Olivia, Toby and Shakespeare were hunkered down on the sofa in front of the telly. It was a cold night, so Olivia had lit the fire. Shakespeare, who was hogging the TV remote, had managed to find another football match, a live Champions League encounter between Celtic and Spurs. The game, which was drawing to an end, had been a highly entertaining 3-all draw. The remains of an Indian takeaway, of which Shakespeare had consumed considerably more than his fair share, lay on the coffee table, along with a plenitude of empty beer bottles. Tell you what, Olivia, for a 400-year-old man, he certainly likes his soccer and biryani. He's partial to lager as well. But bear in mind, Toby, that he is a 400-year-old Englishman. The game finished, and while Shakespeare was reaching for the last piece of Pakora, Olivia seized the opportunity to snatch the remote from under his nose. Aha! And now we're going to watch what I want to. She switched the TV over to the Graham Norton show. The guest pop star this week, Nicki Minaj, had just finished her song. That woman has an extremely enormous ass. Yes, a tiny waist accentuates it. Nicki Minaj teetered on her unfeasibly high heels over to Graham and his other guest on the sofa, Richard Nadden. Graham Norton then introduced his next guest. My next guest, ladies and gentlemen, is a skion. Is that the right word? Skion. Or is it pronounced sion? Oh, too late now. I said it. A scion of a theatrical dynasty going back over 400 years. Ooh, yes. He's a billionaire businessman, a philanthropist, and he's produced films both here and in Hollywood, as well as plays and musicals in West End and Broadway. He was knighted at the ridiculously young age of 29. Where's my knighthood? I'm 29. <laughs> Nearly. <laughs> and he's here to tell us all about his latest project. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Sir Christopher Marlowe! Christopher Marlowe, flashing a 10,000 watt smile, walked on large as life. The audience went wild as he took his place on the sofa beside Richard and Nicky. Apart from the expensive Savile Rose suit and a slightly shorter haircut, he looked exactly the same as the man whose autograph Shakespeare had requested outside the Rose Theatre in 1593. It's great to have you on the show, Sir Christopher. Please, Graham. Call me Kit. Ooh, he's a handsome bugger. And doesn't the smug git know it? If he were made out of milk chocolate, he'd eat himself. Your next film sounds intriguing, Kit. Am I right in believing it's actually all about your famous ancestor and namesake? Yes. It's about the original, Christopher Marlowe, Who's been played by the chap sitting next to you? Yes. I knew there was a reason we had Richard Madden on the show. <laughs> and I must say, Richard, you are quite quite wonderful in the park. Well, thank you for offering it to me, uh, Kit. You are very welcome, Richard. Well, why don't you two fucking poncy bastards just drop your trousers and start sucking each other off? Behave yourself, Toby. We have a guest from the 16th century. But the guest from the 16th century wasn't in the least a bit bothered by Toby's splenetic outburst. The Graham Norton Show had him transfixed. So, Richard, what is it like playing this, you know, totally massive historical icon? Well, the script was great for a start. Yes, it's written by Peter Morgan. It's semi-fictionalised, isn't it? Well, as everybody knows, around about 1593, Christopher Marlowe had this incredible burst of creativity where he wrote this whole bunch of brilliant plays in an incredibly short time. Up to then, he'd only written about six, but now he was like a completely different writer. So we have some fun in the movie speculating on how this might have, you know, come about. Hmm. Uh, doesn't legend have it that he sold his soul to the devil? <laughs> Our explanation is a, a little more prosaic. He is inspired by the love of a beautiful young woman, a quintessential English rose. Who's been played by? Jennifer Lawrence. Wow. Nicki Minaj, who was feeling a little left out of the conversation, attempted a contribution. I love all my stuff. Didn't he do West Side Story? He was the co-writer, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Nikki Marlowe's Romeo and Juliet, which West Side Story is, of course, based on, is woven into the plot of the film. How fascinating. So what's the movie called? It's called Marlowe in Love, and it's released worldwide this weekend. Oh, I can't wait. Let's see a clip. I might go and see that. Christ, I won't. It looks like the kind of typical period costume drama shit this country's filmmakers churn out. Ad- fucking nauseam. I'll bet you any money that built fucking knives in it as well. And don't get me started on calling fucking Firth. As Toby continued with his spittle-flecked diatribe against the United Kingdom's film industry, Shakespeare got up from the sofa. He had suddenly begun to feel very short of breath. Are you feeling all right? Shakespeare didn't reply. He walked over to the window and opened it. Well, if he's going to puke, at least he's got his head stuck out window. Anyway, where was I? Oh yes, Colin fucking Firth. Him and the aforementioned Bill fucking Nye. It was a cold and filthy night. Shakespeare looked up at the lowering clouds, then closed his eyes and remembered... Another cold and filthy night like this. Someone placed a hand on his shoulder. He turned and saw that it was Christopher Marlowe. So, Shakespeare, let, let us celebrate thy good fortune. They went where it was warm and Marlowe poured the wine. A cool kit. Shakespeare. Shakespeare drank from the glass and then all at once he found himself standing by the banks of a river of blood and ice. Marlowe was in a boat and as it drifted further and further away he raised a hand in farewell. Shakespeare looked into the river of blood and ice and saw the face of a stranger who looked just like him. He was telling Shakespeare his name, but his voice was muffled and Shakespeare couldn't make out what he was saying. So he dived into the river of blood and ice and went deeper and deeper. Shakespeare's life flashed before his eyes, but he wasn't drowning, he was swimming up to the surface, and when he broke through it, his eyes snapped open. He closed the window and went over to the bookcase. He took the complete works of Christopher Marlowe from the shelf and rifled through the pages, just as he had done earlier, but this time he knew, he knew that the book was not Marlowe's. The book was his. Apart from half a dozen or so plays, he knew every word of every play in it, and not because he had acted in them. Then he remembered the golden key. He felt for it around his neck, but it was gone. The heavy book dropped from his hands and landed on the floor with a loud thump. Olivia and Toby turned to look at him. There was a wild craziness in his eyes that lent him the demeanour of an escaped lunatic. Jesus Christ, what the fuck is wrong with him? I don't know. Olivia was genuinely alarmed. She switched off the television. Then Shakespeare began to speak. For so long have I slept, but now I have awoken and mine eyes are open wide. If... At Barcelona's Camp field, had Lionel Messi by Cristiano Ronaldo's hand been slain, and had that selfsame hand begrimed with murdered Messi's gore, then snatched from the diminutive Argentine maestro's head the king of football's crown, or, likewise, ere he'd stepped upon the surface of the moon, had Edwin Buzz Aldrin in the lunar excursion module laid low mission commander Neil Armstrong, usurped his rightful place, set his foot first upon the virgin soil of Earth's celestial companion, and then, to compound the mortal felony, had stolen from the noble Armstrong's lips the words, That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Would their sins, in the eternal catalogue of deathly transgressions, account as any less than his? No. For vile perfidy, thy name is Christopher Marlowe. And my name is William Shakespeare. Shakespeare held his arms out wide and smiled in triumph. Olivia and Toby looked at each other, then turned their attention back to Shakespeare and said, Who? The end of episode five of The Heretic's Forfeit.